I've been doing this a while now and I always get asked similar questions and I always have pretty similar answers to those questions about getting a job and communication and burnout and stress and, and those early things that we think about with dentistry. And, and because of that, I decided to put together a, a 10 tips for all dental students and graduates. It's, it's just like a PDF or an ebook, I guess, of the 10 things that I really want to get across to you guys. If you're interested in that, go to dentalheadstart.com. You should be able to download it there. I hope that is useful. I really do. I still remember very clearly, you know, they used to say, hey, Anthony, if it ain't dry, you can kiss it goodbye. Welcome to the Dental Head Start podcast. I'm David Keir, and this episode, we sit down with Dr. Anthony Mack. Dr. Anthony Mack is a general dental practitioner, he's a practice owner, and he's a speaker. You probably have seen him talk about digital dentistry, composites, ceramics, and injection molding. I know he has already had a pretty big impact on my understanding in these topics, and this episode is packed with information about all of these things. But we also, as always, get to know Anthony. We know his story, what he did early on in his career to get to where he is. He worked with a bunch of different people. We learn about the different types of jobs and what that taught him. We learn about his mentors and how he got those mentors. We then get into a little bit about the injection molding technique. There'll be a link to one of his lectures in our show notes. And on that note, we've actually changed our show notes to be a downloadable PDF. So if you're driving when you listen to this and you know you learn all these great things and then you forget those things because you haven't written them down, then go to dentalheadstart.com and the most recent episodes are going to have a PDF that you can download. If you're a subscriber to our mailing list, we're going to email it every fortnight to our listeners. I've spent years listening to podcasts and there's so many things I would have learned and forgot about because I didn't have it written down. So this is our attempt to help you remember the points that these people teach. That was quite the digression. Back to the intro, Dr. Anthony Mack goes on to talk about the AACD and then we get into his new project with Dental X, a big Facebook group and the, the lectures and the continuum that they're doing. And we talk about things like introducing a new procedure and the steps and things you should have in place to make sure you do it to the best of your ability. Dr. Anthony Mack is a wealth of knowledge and he's also such a gentleman and so open to sharing. So I want to say thank you to him for coming on the show, but more importantly to what he's doing for the community, both online and with his CPD and, and lecturing. I hope you enjoy this chat with Dr. Anthony Mack as much as I did. Sorry to interrupt. But how do you make the most out of your CPD? I think the first step is to make sure you've chosen the right CPD. And how do you know that unless you've seen it all? cpdjunkie.com.au is made so that all of the dental CPD in Australia and New Zealand is in the one place. We've got all of the webinars, all of the live courses coming up on the website, easy to find and easy to filter. And the second step, well, it's all in the free ebook on their website, cpdjunkie.com.au, the home of Australian dental CPD. Thank you for supporting dental students and graduates and thank you for supporting the Dental Head Start podcast. Dr. Anthony Mack, thank you for spending some time with us on the Dental Head Start podcast. Uh, you're welcome, David. Uh, always happy to help. 
Well, I'll tell you what, I have seen you helping a lot in the recent years. You're all over Facebook and Instagram. You're doing doing a lot with the groups you run and the courses you teach. I wanted to start this. We're going to get into all of that kind of stuff and your story, but I wanted to start this with a really good question that we got from the audience, actually, from Lawrence. Look, thinking about the recent graduate landscape at the moment and the fact that we are getting so much information online, we're getting so many webinars, we're getting high-quality information or at least theory um, and a lot of us are not doing as much work because we're either shut down or have had a period of shutdown. But this education is pushing us to learn more and perhaps want to do more. Do you see that being a good thing for young dentists or do you see people pushing it too far? Uh, David, that's an interesting question. I guess with just with anything, there's always a balance, isn't there? Um, with any type of online learning, I mean, it's sort of how the people are taking that on, really. Um, obviously, you have a, a mix. We don't know the people who are giving these online lectures. We don't know our listeners. We don't know our demographic. We don't know who's listening to us, who's watching us. And as a speaker, uh, that can be hard because we can't address certain demographics. For example, if I have a lot of students or I have a, a lot of young graduates, I might, you know, hone in on what I think would be the essentials or the basics of, of that topic versus if I knew I had a, an advanced or an experience group uh, where my, if I was giving a talk to a specific study club, like an implant study club, I will hone in on this really uh, sort of more high-level advanced sort of things re- relating to that topic. So, from a, I think it's hard uh, in that sense, but, you know, any education is, it can be good education. Yeah, of With anything, people who are listening must take it for a grain of, with a grain of salt and, and make their own clinical judgment and do their own research behind what they're listening, what is being said, you know, is there an agenda or anything like that, um, if it's given, you know, and, and just really just gauge that and, and just like any sort of CPD that they do really. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I know that you early on were just gung-ho, you were right into CPD and you learn a lot and you grew really quickly. What path would you be taking, do you think, if you just graduated and you couldn't do hands-on? Would you be focusing on certain things or just trying to get as much information as possible? Yeah, look, I think um, the route that I – and this just relates to the route how, how where I took when I graduated. You know, I had a – I had a couple of choices as a as a young as a young dentist, and I could have gone um, into sort of rural settings a bit further out. You know, sixty ninety minutes uh, drive out of of Sydney every day, and I knew I would have a really full book, very busy practice. I was offered, you know, back even even in those times, a six figure sort of salary, or I could go down the route where I was, you know as an employee in private practice, metropolitan, doing really sort of comprehensive work. Um, and, 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 and that I, I was paid probably half as much. Like I was, I was, I was given a salary less than what I would get from a, a dental, um, uh, a dental hospital DO sort of role. Um, but I think again, within that first year, knowledge was what I gained. And and I think knowledge is priceless if I can if I can share that with anyone, and I think mentorship and knowledge um, far exceeds what you is a monetary value in your first couple of years, because you know y- you when you come out 
it's like a license to practice, but there is so much to 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 learn, especially in private practice. If you want to be in private practice, obviously, if you're not, if you don't want to be in private practice, you can go down the academia route. You can stay in the hospital, or if you want to go down the specialty route, generally you you do a bit of mix. You do a part time hospital role or academia role and part time private practice. But if you really want to be a really hand wet fingered, you know, clinician then I think going down the path of getting great mentorship and, and where you're exposed to really good level knowledge is, in my opinion, far outweighs any sort of how busy you are in the practice. Because busy doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be a great dentist. I know you had a great job and we're going to get into that. You had a, a good job at the start. Like you said, you, you didn't get paid as much but you learned a lot and you were getting trained well. How does someone find that? How did you find that? I guess I just, I just fell... You know, I, I just fell into it. Look, you know, um, at that time, I I had uh, we had some of these practices come in looking for graduates and they were telling us about what their practice is about and why we should work with them, you know, and there was a, obviously a promise for, for mentorship, but, you know, there was very clear that we weren't going to be paid, you know, like a, like compared to in a rural setting. And, and, and we were shown a lot of things and, and some of the stuff that was, uh, was, was shown to us was really exciting for me, you know, in terms of, of comprehensive dentistry, a lot of Crown and Bridge. I mean, I really enjoyed, um, the pros side of things when, when I was in uni, like I really enjoyed that. And, um, and so that sort of really sort of ticked my boxes in, in that sense. And so that's where it went. Now for, for, for maybe as dentists these days, that can be a little bit harder because obviously there's a lot more graduates, a lot more dentists. But one thing that I really uh, I did back then was I really looked at where I wanted to work and then I literally knocked on their doors and, and I literally knocked on the doors of some dentists that I felt was going to be, I think, uh, I, I would love to have a job. It would be like a dream for me. And and I literally sat, tried to get some time with them and, and just told them, look, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to learn. I'm really to, to do what it takes. You know, I just want to be given a chance. And, you know, and, and luckily I was. And now my first job didn't provide me with all the knowledge, you know, but then I sort of assessed, I did a lot of self-assessment at that time, what I was really missing. And then I found jobs which were, were would complement that. So, so there wasn't one job, one role that really um, gave me everything I needed to know, you know, and so... Um, but that first role was really important because that set the path for me to get my second and my second and third and fourth roles to be able to uh, provide me with the, a well-rounded knowledge, I guess. Yeah, I, I love that. It's a really good response. But I also really like how you said, oh, you just fell into it, except you also then chose where you wanted to be and knocked on doors and went out there and got the job. And that's something I, I really like and that's that's how I got my job. I chose where I wanted to go and what um, aspects of the job I was looking for and I literally went and knocked on doors and that's the same advice I definitely give people. Um, I, I also like how you say you've had or had multiple jobs early on and those gave you different um, experiences and different skill sets. Um, can you explain perhaps the different types of jobs you ended up in and what skills you got from them? Oh, look, I, I have to say that every single role that I had were were precious to me and and I, there was no one role that was better than the other because each I learned so much from every different place and I think I fell into a uh, a high end uh, I, my first role was a salaried paid position 
as a graduate employee where I was taught a lot about um, communication. I had a mentor. I had a mentor which sat down with me every week and taught me about back then NLP. I'm not sure if people know about NLP, neuro linguistic programming, which I know a lot of communication people did, and and basically. The it was a husband and wife dentist, and the wife was a, a neuro linguistic trainer, and so she would each week sit down with me on a Friday and go through my cases and and things like that, and and basically it was all uh, the whole practice was was um, tailored for comprehensive restorative base crown and bridge veneers aesthetics uh, adhesive dentistry, which in back in those days were like you know really like well out there at that time, you know. Um, but then I wasn't seeing any emergencies, you know. I wasn't seeing any. I wasn't seeing much oral surgery. I wasn't really doing it. But I was really great at taking photos. I, every case where I take photos, I was great at sort of learning how to treatment plan, and I was and I really got a lot of mentorship in how to communicate and how to communicate that treatment plan to the patient. And so, so those were really strong. I was really strong in that after the first year. And of course, the restorative of things. I was learning how to do bonded onlays. I was no, I was doing serics. I was doing a full march serics, uh, posterior serics. I remember I did like ten serics on a patient. This was on seric two, seric three days on my first year out. You know, and this was crazy at that time. You know. But then I was missing the emergencies, I was missing the root canals, I was missing the wisdom tooth oral surgery. So, you know, then I sort of knocked on some doors and I went I went down south and I and went to a group practice where it was a, a wonder I would say one of probably one of the most generous um, mentors and owner. And and he's built up an empire um, you know, down south and and in, in dentistry because of his personality. He was so gracious in supporting and giving the young dentist an opportunity. And we worked really hard. Obviously, I started, I think I started, I had to drive down to Liverpool and I started at about 7 or 7 o'clock. So, I had to leave my house at like 5.30 in the morning. It was really hard and we would do, we start at 7 and we finish at 6.30 in those days, you know. So, so there were long, hard days. But you know, every time you had a problem, the if you ask for help, someone will be there to help. They'll just jump in. You know, we were we were uh, actively sort of supported in to take on wisdom tooth cases, or oral surgery cases, or endodontic cases, which you know uh, we felt sometimes a bit worried about. But we were always told, look, if you this is, we'll sit down, we'll plan the case together. And we'll be there for you when you do it, you know. And and it was all true. And so so I learned a lot of oral surgery. I used to do, you know, on Saturdays I might do like ten trauma or extirpations in a day, you know. So you learned about how to manage kids and trauma, like baseball bats accidents, you know, you know, football footy fields, you know, kids not wearing mouth guards, avulsions. And I learned a lot about in terms of endodontics, and I learned a lot about trauma. I learned about oral surgery in in those practice. And then, and then after about a year and a half after that, I sort of fell into a role um, doing some orthodontics, and and I literally fell into this role because um, I had a, I was very lucky, David. Like I had a friend in my year who was working with at that time uh, Derek Mahoney. I'm not sure if you had. We've had him on the podcast, actually. Yes. He's a gentleman, yeah. 
So Derek uh, was at that time was growing really rapidly and he had um, dentists working for him and, and things like that. He went the route where he'd rather have dentists and rather than have dentists than, than hygienists because dentists were able to work a little bit more independent to support him. And, um, and, and basically my friend, Shimanto, who, who, who was working for him, uh, I think two days a week or three days a week, um, was leaving him because he went, decided, look, I want to do an orthodontic master's. Derek needed someone to fill his role. And so Shimano said, hey, Anthony, do you want to do some orthodontics? And at that time, I actually said no. I said to Shimano, <laughs> look, I'm not interested in this. I, I, That's not I, <laughs> I want to do LV. I want to do cosmetic dentistry. I want to do like Las Vegas Institute, full mouth rehabs. Um, we call it uh, myofunctional um, occlusion, all that things, you know. But he goes, look, just come and give it a go. And I said, look, he was a good friend of mine. So I hung out with him and I literally sat next to him for about six to eight weeks um, just when he was working, I learned orthodontics and he said, look, I'm going now. And he goes, here, you're, here you go. There's the chair. You're, you've started. And so, I then <laughs> spent so good, basically jumped into the chair and we were treating like 30 to 40 patients a day anywhere start to finish with and then working with Derek when he was, you know, working with Derek in what he calls those A3 days where he used to rotate between three or four chairs and we'll basically be there, his hygienist, you know. And I learned so much from that. I did that for like five and a half years, you know. And and look, so after that, you know, I was able to then move on and and then after a couple of years, I, I when I started Derek's, I also picked up a role um, with Chris Ho back then. So and and I guess Chris again, it was just something out of the blue. Um, the practice manager, my first role, left and and moved on to to Chris. And Chris was looking for an associate, and he asked, her and she recommended me and. I went for an interview. I told him about, you know, we were doing all these Cerex and things like that. And he said, yeah, okay, great. Do you want a job? And he offered me a job and, and that the, the end was history, I guess. I guess, yeah, that's where I ended up. And I ended up having a lot of great mentors and, yeah. I, I can only imagine that um, those experiences obviously have shaped your entire career. Um, obviously, Dr. Chris Ho, uh, one of the best prosthodontists in Australia, um, working under him must have been amazing. And Derek, uh, Dr. Derek Mahoney is the same in orthodontics. You stayed with Dr. Derek Mahoney for five and a half years. You must have been getting a lot from what you were doing. Yeah, I stayed with Chris and Derek for five, both for five years. I literally stayed, I was working with them, you know, uh, four and two days a week. So I was working six days a week for, I think, five, five and a half years. And then, then I decided just to take the plunge and have a go at crack at having my own practice. We'll, we'll touch on that. Um, in fact, maybe tell that story now. When did you start the practice? I think I started in uh, 2008, I think. I think 2008, I think, yes. That sounds like a really good time to start a business. Yeah, so an interesting story was <laughs> it was um, 2008, people would know, was also the GFC. Um, I started in May. I think it was my. It was also my 30th birthday. And uh, it was our 30th birthday on a Saturday. I think it was uh, 1st of May. And uh, oh no, third of May was the was the, my thirtieth birthday, and we were printing out letters to the database that we were going to send out on Monday because I had to. I was taking over the practice on the Monday, so I didn't really get my uh, usual thirtieth <laughs> celebration. Yeah. But it's a different like a, way to do it. Yeah. So <laughs> um, yes, and then we were in May. We started, and by August the GFC hit. And I think if people have heard some of these podcasts, I say the same thing to people. I think by November, I was almost bankrupt. 
Yeah, yeah, that would have been a really tough time. What what lessons came out of that? We're going to get back into a lot of the other stuff you've already talked about, but let's go down this rabbit hole. What lessons came out of that experience? Do you think you benefited from that in some way? Oh, for sure. I think you know, you know, we we were almost to the point where I had no money left. I had I had five thousand dollars in my bank account uh, between me and my my girlfriend at that time, um, who's my wife now, and and we. We had a mortgage to pay in an apartment which we had bought a couple of years uh, beforehand, and and it just really uh, I think what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. That saying is really really true because it made us appreciate what we have now. I think and appreciate every patient that walks through the door, and uh, really appreciates you know you know what uh, you know that hard work and and putting the hours in. And really can achieve, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Did it help your um, perhaps your treatment planning or your communication? I know you were quite strong in that early on because of your mentors. But did you have a different focus or a different um, consideration for those patients? Probably, how say? Maybe I had a bit more tolerance back then. I, I because I needed to <laughs> to I needed to make sure that um, that I offered something for every patient. You know, like, um, and and this is something that uh, Chris taught me very, very well. He goes, no matter what patient comes in, you should be able to provide them some form of care. You know, it even could be the most basic from hygiene to a filling to a full mouth reconstructing. The patients should not leave you feeling that they cannot be seen by you or they cannot be treated by you or you were, you know, too expensive or too over the top or uh, inconsiderate of their needs. You know, that's that's something that I really learned really strongly. So, um, obviously, you know, communication and, and, and I guess what I really learned was, you know, just being honest, you know, if you're really honest with it and being passionate in your beliefs that will carry through and really just good customer service we always used to tell our staff you know when we come in we always treat them like you know you need to treat them like if how you like to be treated if you went to an expensive hotel because that's a that's like a benchmark you know you go to an expensive hotel and when the minute or expensive restaurant the minute you walk through that door that service that you get we we try to deliver that for patients coming in because at the end of the day even though we're healthcare providers in private practice we're still providing a service that people are paying for yeah, I think that's a really good point. And if you if you're trying to meet that level of care, you have to be thinking of it from that lens. It's easy to forget to sit in your own dental chair and forget to look at the roof and what what the patient sees. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I want to ask something. You you mentioned um, you know all these different things you were doing early on. You're working really really hard, um, six days a week, couple of different practices, learning different concepts. Did you have any burnout? Did you have any effects of that in a negative way at all? Yeah, no, I was. Uh, I always had the mentality of uh, work hard, play hard, and and I guess my mentors would know. So that you know, we, <laughs> <laughs> um, so no, I would work really hard during the day, and then I would still enjoy time, you know, out outside at night and evening with my friends. I did do a lot of conferences and and CPDs, which I'm grateful that my my mentors allowed me to do. Um, but you know, I sort of had myself created, gave myself where I work hard for a period of time, and then I'll give myself a conference or short break, and that was would be my sort of my little rest period downtime. Um, yeah, I, I think I didn't really think about burnout. I think for me it was the determination to sort of um, 
try to be better, be a really good dentist. And, and you know, you can't – I probably at that time I, str- I probably didn't even think of that because what I was worried about was I guess I had to pay a lot of bills and things like that. So I think I was – driven by I think I wanted a, a good I, I wanted to have fun I wanted to have a good lifestyle I wanted to drive a nice car and so if I needed to do that I had to tell myself I had to work hard for it so um, mm. the- what, what do you think um, started that drive for you or, or have you always been you know competitive and, and willing to put in 110 uh, look, you know, my upbringing, I mean, we were a migrant family. So, so, um, you know, we didn't, we didn't, we weren't given a lot of opportunities as kids, you know, so, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you know, I, I work as part-time jobs right throughout, you know, dental school. I was a dental assistant on Saturdays when I was a student. I, I, I did takeaway delivery. I delivered fish and chips. I drove fish and chips around, um, you know, in my local area back then when I was in like second and third year. Um, I guess, uh, yeah, I, 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 I guess you, you, you just basically have to do what you need to do. And, and for me to want to have some a bit more for myself, I needed, you know, I needed to work hard. And all of a sudden, I came out of dentistry, and I felt like we were earning a, a good income. And and I have to say, like, you know, dentistry has given me uh, a really good you know lifestyle and 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 it's it's done really well for me and so i'm very always grateful for it so so i guess when you when you come out you know you you earning some money i you that's sort of the drive i guess you know that i can wow i can buy myself a nice car bought myself a bmw um you know i bought myself a nice watch which i eventually ended up losing um (laughs) and i've never bought another watch for myself ever again but i guess it was just um you know if i wanted something i had to go and work for it but mentality yeah, yeah, that, that that makes sense, and it is a really good mentality. I guess the, as you said, not having a lot when you were younger can definitely play a big role. And a lot of people who do achieve great things have that as a inherent drive. Um, like I, I guess my drive comes from a lot of that, a bit of a fear of failure, and then a bit of a, um, you know, I didn't, I'm not meant to be a dentist. I'm just from a lower middle class. You know what I mean? So that that definitely drives me as well. Tell us about your path, perhaps into dentistry. Did you um, want to be a dentist when you were young? No, I I, I sort of fell into it, you know. Like, uh, I mean, I think I said the same thing to Omid. Like, um, I, how do I say? I fell into dentistry because I actually never – growing up in a migrant family, we barely even went to see a dentist. I think I was taken to the dentist maybe twice in my life. So, I didn't really know what dentistry was about. But in now, back in those days, we were doing our so-called HSC. I, don't, I think they call it differently now. And for us to uh, do to get into dentistry, you had to sit for uh, well, like they call it a stat test, like a gam stat test, which was during the day. So you had to actually apply to the school to go to a certain venue to do this test. And at that time, all my friends apply for it. And I said, what are you guys doing? I said, oh, we're going to go and sit for this test. But because it's in the city, afterwards, we can go and hang out and play pool or play video games at so-called time zone. I don't think you even have time zone <laughs> these days anymore. So <laughs> Yeah, you're dating yourself, Anthony. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm branding myself in my era. So, so basically, I just said, okay, well, I'm not going to be left by myself at school. So, so I jumped in and I, I, I took the test. And then, um, and then after results came out, I, I, I was managed to get in. And, they, and my friends said, you know, you're going to be silly not to take it. I went to a selective high school and, uh, and, and only myself and the person who came top in the state got 
uh, accepted into dentistry. So, so all my friends at one I said, you've got to be crazy not to jump in. So, at that time, I was sort of peer pressured and I sort of jumped in. <laughs> <laughs> did, you, um, did you know what you were getting yourself into before you started university? Did you observe it all or anything? Nothing, around? nothing, and that's probably why I think I said I almost, I almost got kicked out of dental school, and <laughs> and, and I think uh, people would never realize, but I almost did not get through dentistry. Like, and and my friends in my year would know they would have never even considered that I would <laughs> even graduate, let alone to do what I'm doing now, David. Like, you know, I would say we had about fifty something a year, and I would say everyone in our year. Uh, would would have probably said that Anthony Mack, man, he would. I, I can't even know how he managed to pull himself together, and came from last. You know, when I when I was in our first year, to almost coming almost coming close to the top. You know, in in when we graduated. So, um, yeah, I was very lucky. I got a university medal um, when I graduated um, as a prize, and and. And and so people just couldn't believe it. So I, I look, you know, <laughs> what what flicked the switch for you? What, what do you did you recognize a time where it's like, no, I do like this. I'm ready. Yeah, I think what flicked the switch was, uh, I have to say, I failed my first year. I failed all the science. I was never very good with some of the sciences back then. You know, histopathology, biochemistry, and things like that were were really I really struggled with, and 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 mixed in with a, a lot of uni life. Like I, I wasn't expecting uh, such a, a, a in such a tough course. You know, in in dentistry. Um, so basically, yeah, I, I think the I really um, sort of struggled, and then. I sort of at that point in time where when I redid my first year, I just scraped through. And then when I went to year two, I almost failed again. And at that time, they said that if you fail twice in three years, you're out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that was the policy back then, you know. Um, and I was almost about to be kicked out. I had to do what they call subs where you pass and they give you a second chance to do the test. And at that point myself, I was pretty down. Like I felt really low. Like I felt like the end of the world at that time because I had nowhere to go to. We, I tried looking at moving to a different course. Um, but because of the way dentistry is so unique, I could never get into the course that I would, I would probably like. The only thing I could get into was science and arts and both of the things that I actually didn't want to do. So it was the just it was just where we bottomed out at that point, and I just said I, I either pull myself together and and just put my head in and start doing it, cut out a lot of the party lifestyle, or or I, I leave dentistry and find something else to do. And, but then the thing is, I had nowhere to go to. Yeah, yeah, almost trapped into it. But yes. then, but that lit the fire under you, I guess. And you mentioned earlier um, communication, and you were taught a little bit about NLP, and we've heard it mentioned on the podcast a few times. Could you just explain, perhaps in broad terms, what that is, and maybe an example or two? Uh, I think NLP. I mean, obviously, I only learned the basics of it, you know, and because I had one year of it with uh, with my mentor at that time, and but a lot of the stuff was. Um, was still ingrained in my in my in my head. It was more like um, little things like you know you sowing the seeds to things like you when you tell patients certain things um, you you actually sowing the seeds. They may not accept 
the treatment plan right now. It doesn't mean that they're not going to come back to treatment plan. And it also doesn't mean that you should be telling them something else. If a patient really needs a crown, you sow the seeds that they do need a crown, you know, early on. And then you might have to repeat that a couple of times. So when the time comes to doing it, they will accept the they will accept the treatment plan. You know, uh, we wouldn't go and say, well, that you can do a crown or you can have a filling. And then you're not really sowing the seeds because then they're just obviously always going to take the, the the most simplest way out, you know, because you felt that well, if I'm not going to get if I'm not going the patient not going to have the patient may not accept the crown, I, I should be doing something for the patient, you know, I need to do a filling for them. But you know, it's more just like um, pre- pre- presenting a, a treatment plan, you know, tell them telling them basically sitting them down, like basically we would sit them down for a proper consult appointment we would never talk to a patient when they're a treatment plan when they're lying down or we will not try, never try to persuade them into something when they're not in a in a vulnerable position you know we always sit them up we always show them the pictures we always go through um you know back there cracks what can happen to cracks you know you're sowing the seeds for something that requires it now you may sow the seeds for that the whole mouth has cracks everywhere but you would never go and try we will never try to push the whole mouth treatment plan and we'll keep going down that route if you know that the patient really wasn't in a position to do all that we will still try to provide them good care and maybe start off simple maybe start off with one tooth rather than a whole mouth of to- of, of restorations and i think those are just little uh, simple principles that, that i kept i mean i couldn't really think of exactly one of them because uh, now for you david because it's so, it's so ingrained in my head now that of what yeah, we you're do. natural yeah that's what you do exactly and that's what happens isn't it our, our way we communicate with our patients becomes a fixed thing you mentioned just that you know you wouldn't really say a crack or a filling did were you meaning you might say um you know this needs a crown but perhaps if we can't afford a crown we'll do a filling now and a crown in the future is that kind of the way you would phrase instead or look i think the way if i had to do it now uh if i had a let's say the scenario where a patient comes in just for their general checkup or so um we see some cracked teeth we see some recurrent decay we see some old amalgam restoration we see something's about to go wrong you know in those cases we would tell them look you ideally should have a crown on this restoration you know um we won't sort of we would we we can say you can have a filling but that's we will also explain to them but that is not your ideal restoration to be done and then we sort of explain to them why it's not ideal you know because some of the disadvantages of, of large posterior composites and things like that and and that is a part and then we let the, the, the patient decide on that now, for another example, is is that you know if uh, if you if you give patients sort of three options, in my person, in my experience, generally they'll always take the one option in the middle most of the time. So if you give them just a crown or filling, most of the time they're just going to go for a filling because they're going to say, "Well, the crown's too expensive, or it's not for me. I don't need all these fancy dentistry," you know. But if you give them a filling. You give them an onlay, and then you give them a crown option. Generally, a lot of times we find that they potentially will pick up the onlay option because they know it's their own teeth. They don't want the most basic for their teeth. And after you explain to them some of the disadvantages of of large posterior composites, they also feel that they may not need the most expensive option. So you sort of they, they say, okay, well, if I can generally afford an onlay, I will probably take that option. 
you know and and i guess not it's not a it's not a, a foolproof system but you'll find that you i i found that i've had a lot of high percentages of case acceptance when i did that mm, that's really interesting and and i guess if we think about into our own lives that's that's exactly how i look at things <laughs> i don't want the cheapest bottle of wine but i don't want the most expensive bottle of wine so i'll get the middle <laughs> bottle of wine um and i've heard people talk about you know presenting uh, perhaps the most expensive first which frames their mind and a little bit instead of the most um the cheapest option first so then they're thinking oh well that's a bit cheaper if it's the middle option um of course the point is to give them the ideal options and let them decide but these things do make a bit of a difference Let's talk a bit about some of the, you know, the things that you're known best for. And I think the one that you're probably known best for at the moment is actually a lecture I saw you do recently on, or webinar lecture, um, on the injection molding technique. Um, for people who don't know what that is, maybe just a brief, you know, what is that? And um, how, how does that change your practice, the way you treat wear? Uh, I guess, yes, injection molding, I guess it's been around for a long, long time. It's not something that's new. You know, I mean, if I look back in the Doug Douglas Terry, an American guy, used to do a lot of it. I guess where this type of technique came through was my involvement with digital dentistry. Obviously, I started very early on in terms of the digital dentistry. What you see today, like, you know, smile designs, digital mock-ups in terms of doing full mouth rehabs and things. I started very early on that path of doing digital dentistry. And then I was involved with um, uh, a company, the company who makes this a specific material called injectable composite. So it's like a, a, we call it like a separate class where injectable composite is like it's got a flowable consistency, but it's got the physical properties of a paste composite. And, and that's sort of the class of it. So it's not really a flowable composite. It, it's sort of, it's a little bit thicker, a bit more viscous, but it still can act as a flowable. Um, but it's got the good, it's got all the properties of a normal conventional nano paste comps that you that you use day, day in day out so combining those two where the concept is trying to treat worn down denticians um or, or a lot of cases where you don't need to prepare the teeth and you're trying to use adhesive bonding to rebuild those rebuild some of the erosive wear or erosion or or wear on the on the teeth that we see commonly uh in a lot of our patients especially for those cases where we didn't really have a solution for. I still remember when I came out, I didn't really know how to treat these cases. So the first thing was, oh, let's put you in a splint. You know, let's put you in a and let's wa let's watch and see if it gets worse or not. The fact of the matter is, is that there is. I forgot. I forgot as a kid. I made the mistake as a young dentist that there is damage to those teeth. It's my responsibility to to advise the patient that there is an option to fix it rather than just watch and wait. But I've also experienced in those times where I wasn't able to handle those cases and I may have referred some of those out and the patients come back saying, look, you know, all of a sudden they get a full mouth worth of crowns and, and a massive treatment plan that they weren't able to afford. And so that sort of hence came up with uh, more of a conservative approach um, and also an approach where it was a little bit more cost effective for the patient. It's um, for the patients who need that kind of work and for those cases where they either can't afford ceramics or um, want an interim option, it's a fantastic option. I must admit, I have not done that um, 
type of case, but I know and have talked with a lot of people about it. Um, I am going to link the webinar, actually, the lecture that you did, so people who aren't aware can find it in our show notes um, because that was a really good webinar about this. Um, I just want to ask, and this is something I'm sure you get asked all the time. We had Mick on our Facebook group ask, um, how do you get the confidence that it seals the boxes um, or the areas within the um, injection molding, but also how do you do that without filling up the interproximal? Classic question. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, the two questions here, uh, are we talking about anterior or posterior restorations? Let's think of it as a whole arch and they're doing six to six. Okay. For Okay. Generally, a lot of those uh, wear cases, if they have an existing class two restorations, I would restore those first because an injectable technique is not designed for class two restorations uh, as a whole like if you're doing multiple teeth you can probably do an injectable if it was an individual single tooth where you could be able to place a, a matrix but where you can't get a matrix on there you you can't use this technique it's not designed for that so i would probably before i do the injection molding i would pre-fill those class twos and I'll slightly under contour it or I'll just create the same contour as where they're at. And then when I come to do the injection molding technique, I just reactivate composite. We know that reactivating a freshly um, placed composite, you still have a lot of uncured monomers that you can bond to. And so that's how I have to do a two-step approach. But you'll find that a lot of the cases where approach, a lot of the cases may not actually have class two composites. You know, they, they, you'll find there's a lot of anteriorly, anterior those wears all palatal wear, but they actually don't have decay. Um, because when you come to a decay with erosion, that's a whole different ball game. It's not something that potentially is treatable with injection molding. In those cases, you may actually need to have some full coverage restorations um, because you might have big class three or big class three restorations which are through and through already. You know, if you involve in a labial surface and you involve a, a palatal surface and interproximally, then maybe the injection technique is is not suitable. So I guess it's. In, in a nutshell, it's more case um, sort of case dependent. You have to pick your case selection uh, for this type of technique is very important. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, is there any tips you have for dentists who are using this technique, maybe just how they can avoid getting that interproximal fill and to limit the cleanup after they're use, doing it? Yeah, again, case selection. Obviously, this type of technique is because you're using a silicon, it's not great when you've got patients with uh, a lot of interproximal space, like patients who've had previous perio, um, they're not ideal. You really want okay, uh, patients who have erosion but haven't got any perio, so you don't have sort of black triangles. If you do have black triangles, it does become uh, very difficult uh, to, to, um, to sort of fill in as well in, in a large case. Like if you're just doing a diastema closure and you're doing a two, that's fine because you're only working on two teeth. But if you're working on multiple teeth in, in the time and you've got a lot of um, uh, embrasure space, it, it, it is challenging, you know. And obviously to that, if you were challenging yourself with those cases, you must ensure that your impression or your scan or your mock-up does cater for that and that you're able to form a seal it's all about forming a seal with your silicon to your tooth if you can form a seal you minimize the excess 
That makes sense. And the cases you're talking about, really, you can think of them very clearly in your mind. They're the reflux case where there's no perio, there's no decay, they're just flat teeth. Um, and that makes a lot of sense. Or constricted cases where there's a lot of palatal wear, like you see people who have lost of posterior support and they start wearing a lot of the palatal surface of the anterior teeth. Those are the cases where they're perfect for it. They've still got uh, enamel rim. There's no decay there. And those ones where, you know, it'd be silly to to do any sort of indirect, you can just inject it, inject into them. Yeah, with indirects, we'd just be cutting a lot of that enamel away, making more damage perhaps. You also talk a lot about obviously um, anterior composites and you teach some courses with that, with Smith and, um, and yourself. Uh, I want to ask, I want to get an idea. Can you give us just a couple of tips, um, a couple of things that you see those graduates doing that just are making their anterior composites harder? Yeah, look, if I had to put it into a nutshell, two real things that we that people come out of our course that really um, I think is really important is understanding opacity. People more don't realize the opacities of composites. If you don't get the opacity right, no matter how good your composite is, it's always going to look gray, you know. You're going to see that margin line. It's all about the opacity. Okay. Um, <laughs> I know that pretty well. <laughs> Learned the opacities of my composites yeah. um, early on in my career. <laughs> That's it. The second, the second thing is, is at what I call in my technique that we sort of teach, what we sort of developed was what we call the control layer concept. You know, you need to control the thickness of your layers. You know, you need to have reference points of what you're doing because if you don't have control, and you just go in there, I'll just put some opaque comes it. I think I'm going to put some enamel comes it, and you think that's just going to work. I followed the recipe, David. I put I put uh, opaque comes it in, and I put half a millimeter of enamel in, and then by the time you polish it away, why doesn't look? Why doesn't it look like <laughs> it should be? And the reason most of the time is is that that half a millimeter enamel may not be actually at the final position where you want it to be because you've actually grinded all that away because you didn't you didn't have reference points to refer to. So understanding where to put the type of composite or the, the opacity, different opacity of composites and the thickness of them is, is very important. And if you can get those right, you generally can have an invisible restoration. And you'll probably hear a lot of people say it's getting shape. Obviously, if you get the shape right as well, the third thing, but that comes down to a lot of simple things like just a mock-up. Yeah, not with your finger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, you talk about reference points. How how do you get the reference points? Is there an instrument you're using or is there other No, techniques? I mean, we all, every single tooth has one reference point that we can always refer to. It, it's in every single tooth uh, or mostly anyway and, and in any sort of class four restoration, a large class four restoration, and that is the dentinal enamel junction. We can always see where the dentinal enamel junction is. In a natural tooth, that separates between the dentine and the enamel. When we're trying to be biomimetic with our composites, we're also trying to replicate these two layers. So the dentinal enamel junction is actually where you are, uh, where your you can get your reference point. And if you can use, and if you can then tweak with your understanding of the different composites you're using, the opacity of them, and using that reference point, you generally can create a harmonious restoration that can be invisible. Hmm. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. We're just trying to be um, replicate nature, I guess. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. Just just being controlling what you're doing. Yeah, having having envisioned, you know, exactly what you're trying to do. With these courses, you you actually you're running a lot of courses at the moment. I don't know how you do it all, and and your your own practice and everything else. Um, 
There's been a big course that you've released recently. It sounds amazing. It's um, the um, Through Dental X. Tell us a bit about the ACE course. Yeah, look, I think, um, yeah, look, thanks for bringing that up. I didn't actually know you were going to bring that up. It's a, it's a course that really hasn't been, uh, it hasn't really, we haven't released it publicly, but because people have, we've already, uh, a lot of people ask us about it and we've shared it with them. But this course is basically uh, accumulation of all my years of, of I guess, teaching and communicating and, and listening to the people that come to the courses. A lot of them come to us, oh, what other courses do you do? Or, or how do we do what you do in your practice? And, and you know, at the end of the day, I, I'm in a general practice. I love what I do. I do a lot of restorative work. I do, you know, I do, I try to do good restorative work. I try to do good implants. I do a lot of digital dentistry. Um, and, 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 you know, we, we, we try to handle a majority of cases that comes through the door. Let's say if you can handle 60% of cases that come through the door, you will have a, a thriving private practice, you know, and we still work with our specialist team. We still work with our periodontists. We still work with our oral surgeons. We still work with our orthodontists. But if you can handle roughly 60 to 80% of the cases that come through the door and, and you, you will be, you'll be very busy in your practice. And part of that is, is this ACE program, which is just accumulation of what we do in private practice and basically uh, a program which I feel as a, a young dentist coming through, if they do a program on this, they will be, number one, more confident in asp- all the aspects of private dentistry um, because it's basically what we do. And number two, I hopefully that they will be uh, more hireable because they will be confident in most facets of dentistry. Like, you know, the the ACE program is a is a one year program, and and you know we've designed it so that that not all the programs are taught by myself, but I will be there in every single program. But we have specialists that come in to teach the programs which I feel uh, require a specialist involvement. For example, we, we have, you know, let's let's talk about the. I mean, people can go on dentalx.com.au and have a look at the program, but the first program is all about photography. It's all about treatment planning. It's all about case selections, you know, and it's all about basic uh, bonding, adhesive dentistry. These are all the things we need to be able to do good quality dentistry, how to treatment plan, how to take good photos, how to, um, you know, how to communicate. And the thing is we're then going to teach them how to do photos. We also then how to um, teach them how to basically early uh, principles of bonding and rubber dam. So we're going to teach them through that in the first module. And then all the other modules follow through. Then you've got your, in our, what I feel in a level, in, a, in order of importance as a young dentist coming through. We need to learn how to do composites. I was going to say it's it's something I really like because I think and there's a few you know a few people are working on this kind of thing which is helping the graduate go from being just a graduate to a, you know a great dentist that, that's the whole point of what I'm trying to do with the podcast but these these continuum style courses are better than just um, picking a lecture here and doing a hands on there um, I was going to ask you about your CPD journey when you were younger. And also, what journey you would recommend? Let's let's put ACE aside just for now, and think about um, what would you be recommending people are picking. I think you're going to pretty much explain your continuum. <laughs> um, but what advice do you have for the graduates? 
Uh, look, I, I was, uh, I guess, I, I, when I came through as a young graduate, my mentor, the first thing he did was he sent me to America. He sent me to the American Academy of Cosmetic Dentistry, and and that really blew my world mind away because back at that back in that those times, the AACD was a, a massive society. I think things are slightly different, but I still I still think they're very very good. But they really had a lot of really uh, cost-effective courses, hands-on courses for young dentists, uh, for young graduates or students. I think it was like, I think it was like three hundred dollars for two days of of multiple hands-on courses, lots of module stuff, and and basically I went there and I learned all about bonding. I learned about adhesion. You know, they learned about isolation. They used to tell. I still remember very clearly. You know, they used to say. Hey Anthony, if it ain't dry, you can kiss it goodbye. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and, and, and so and I still remember to this day about isolation. You know, and how how that for you to do composite composite dentistry. You know, those are the days where you know Newton Farr was there, and you know all those people, Ed McLaren, um, all those greats. You know, Bill Dickinson. You know, Mike Miyazaki. All those really strong people. Um, you know. Um, and Bill Dorfman was there at that time as well. So all these people who may not know who Bill Dorfman is, you know, he's the one that created Zoom Whitening and all the TV shows uh, about smile makeovers at those times. It's a pivotal part of dentistry. Yeah. Um, I, I know a lot of the names because I listened to so many podcasts when I was a student. <laughs> That's why I yeah. do one myself. And they were all American back then. So um, do you recommend people do the AACD now or try oh, to get the accreditation? Oh, I definitely think so. AACD is if, if – uh, look, I haven't been – uh, for many years, but if it is still what it used to be, it's a great all-round uh, course, a co- conference to go to. You know, you pick up a lot of things. You know, um, you know, and then I did a lot of some uh, introductory ortho. I did, you know, you know Brockman. I did Brock Rondeau. Um, all those people who come used to come through through NAOL. Um, I did a lot of uh, sort of um, yeah. I did I did a lot of LVI stuff when they came through, which is all about ceramics and 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 neuromuscular dentistry. So I, I mean, I I I, I headed down that route, you know, all the restorative route, um, the orthodontic route, and 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 then and then the CAD CAM sort of stuff, the digital sort of stuff came in. So that was where we were strong. And then when we worked with Chris, I did the implants diploma with Sydney Uni, which I, I highly recommend. Um, that really changed a lot of things. Um, and so those were the, really some of the core things that I did. Um, I guess I think, you know, and, and I guess I, I did Jason Smithson's composite course, you know, and, and I learned so much from him and my experience with him, you know, really taught me to be how to be a good teacher and, 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 and really um, improve my aesthetic dentistry. Um, so, you know, all those sort of – all those things sort of combine to them. I think it's more important to share with you where I think where you should start. You know, you know, it's no point to going to a course to do how to full arch rehabilitation when we we haven't really understood the treatment planning side of things. You know how to do those, or you may not even have the patient flow. Like you may have just started into a practice there. You know, it's really understanding that that we all walk the same. You know, we all walk the same paths, and it's really important to that you will all get to a stage where you know. You think that what I'm doing or, or – and I felt the same way when I used to work for Derek and Chris that what they were doing were amazing and I would never be able to do those hours. I will never be able to achieve what they're doing, you know. But 
we all walk the same paths and we always get there. So it's just important to to sometimes take our time and just really assess what where we're at, what type of patients we're seeing, and then do your CPD based on that. You know, and because you know, patient not saying that if you work in a practice where you just do composite, you're going to do composites for 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 the rest of your career. But what we do know is that if you do good composites, you end up getting the ceramics afterwards. You know, people wanting veneers and people wanting or cosmetic dentistry, people needing re- full mouth rehab are not just going to drop on our lap. You know, this is a, a, something that we all need to believe, understand that these big cases don't just fall in and say, look, I need to, sp-. you know, it's very rare a patient will come in, I need to spend $50,000, $60,000 on my teeth. Um, and I think you're the man to do it. And you might be just a new graduate. Yeah. You've so, got to build to these things. It doesn't exactly, happen overnight. Exactly right. Yeah. We get exposed to so much on social media and so many complex cases. And, and it, I think it might cloud or confuse the judgment of some very early stage dentists on what I guess you'd be doing when you graduate because really what you're doing is the nuts and bolts and really what you should be doing is learning those foundational aspects really, really well. Um uh, we had a good question um, about uh, digital dentistry and, and the, obviously, you know, getting started with digital dentistry if you own the practice can be expensive. Um, but the other side of that coin is most of the listeners are probably associates and if they're not in a practice that has all that, how can they still achieve, do you think they can still achieve these results without all the, the equipment and the, the digital things that go with most of the cases we see? Um, look, I, I believe so. Um, I believe so and I guess... Um, the real one thing that you really need, to be honest, is just a, a scanner, you know, and, and some scanners are, are now to the point where they're relatively reasonably, you know, cost so that you could probably afford to pay off a scanner over a year or two. And if your practice didn't have it, you could literally carry it around to wherever you go and you could scan it. And the other thing that you need to work with is a very good lab technician that understands digital dentistry combining those two you should be able to do a a really high majority of cases um i don't really have that that many fancy equipments i mean you know we do have equipments but if i look at it could i what could i still do that without any equipment i i that i can't live without i would say i still need my scanner if you get and i don't really need the most expensive scanner I just need an accurate scanner. It doesn't even need to be color. It could be just, you know, monochrome. And I would still be able to achieve 90% of the work that we do. Yeah, and that, that is exactly the question I was looking for. What is the most important piece? And you're right, they are getting to an affordable stage. Maybe not in, you know, your first year graduation might be a little hard. You want to buy some fun stuff. But, hey, a scanner's pretty fun too, actually. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, I think scanners get down there, do a really good scan you can get for like $20,000 now. And that's still a lot of money. But if you stretch that over two years and you're thinking about, okay, maybe about $10,000 a year. And if you put that, or maybe if you put that over three years, I mean, you definitely should get life out of it. I mean, obviously, yes, it'll be great to have it in a practice, but if you don't have it in that practice, if you really wanted to do down there, you could still, you could still potentially, um, you could still potentially uh, do it. Yeah. 
Yeah, we're definitely at that position. In, in maybe five years ago or seven years ago, that wasn't possible. It was way too expensive. But the thing is, if you're that person who is buying a scanner and that focused on that kind of high-quality dentistry, you're going to pay it off just by the fact that you'll see the dentistry that needs to be done. Yeah, I mean, you, you don't buy a scanner if you're not doing any sort of – if you're not going to use it, that's the thing. You, know, yeah. you, need, to, you need to be doing – I mean, the most basic would be restorative dentistry that, that the scanner is – or Invisalign, you know, like those type of aligners. So, if you're doing a lot of – clear liners then yeah definitely you should get it because it'll easily pay it off i mean a clear liner is what anywhere between six to eight thousand dollars a case you know and and you only need you know a good you know five ten cases and you'll be you know, paying it off you know um the other one will be restorative work which is indirect work you know if you're doing a lot of crown and bridge or you're doing some simple a lot of single unit crowns um that's going to help you pay it off so if you're doing a substantial amount of or those two things then it should be it should be uh, a good a good uh tool to have now if you're just doing a lot of posterior composites you haven't started doing a lot of crown and bridge work yet then then maybe you need to just hold back a little bit and just do do the impressions you know because you still need to be good at an impression because there may be cases where you may still need to take an impression in initially that's where, <laughs> that's where I fall down. I've got Itero and Seric. I've taken about 10, 20 PVSs in my four years. <laughs> um, I've done plenty of <laughs> digital dentistry. Um, I wanted to change the topic. Um, you did mention a little bit before about starting and doing new procedures. Um, we had a, a good question on Instagram. How do you get the courage or what recommendations do you have for people who are trying a new technique they haven't done before that they're concerned about? Uh, I guess planning. Planning, planning, planning. So, don't start a new procedure on the day that you think that that your first time you saw the patient. You know, um, plan it well. Discuss it with the patient. I actually tell my patients that look, this is a new type of procedure that's going around. I'm going to make sure that I'm well, uh, I'm well educated, or I've done my my, my research on it before we're going to do it. But the reason why I think it will be suitable for you, for example, is because you know, whether it's digital dentistry is more accurate or, or whether it's more conservative, those are the things that come to mind. Um, generally, you must have a patient that is going to be acceptable to those new procedures, you know, someone that you've seen in the past um, that you've built a really good rapport with. Um, and, and, and then basically plan well. So if you don't know how the procedures, make sure you read up on it and make sure you speak to people that have done this procedure before. This is where your mentors come in. You know, speak to a mentor that's done these procedures before, run through them. And, and this is something that I teach a lot of my associates is that a few days before or even a week before the procedure that you've booked and you've planned it, run through and i used to do this when i was a younger i when i used when i first started my couple of full mouth rehab i used to write down every single step that i'm going to do through my head i'm actually running through the scenario in my head and i'm writing it down each step and what i'm going to use and that actually sits on the back of my bench because it's very easy when you're in the in the a new procedure a new environment where it's stressful and you know your nurse doesn't know what you're trying to do you may not have what you have to add that you have it's very easy to forget a step and that sometimes can lead to problems with the procedure 
If you have it behind you, you can say, okay, step one, this is what I need to do. Step two, this is what I need to do. You actually, I find that really helped me a lot because I've ran through the whole procedure in my head after I've done my research. Whether you, you look at, you know, videos or you do your research, you've done your course that you've, you've recorded some of the procedures and you've gone actually written down step by step and, and, and each step what you're going to be doing. That's a really good um, response. And I think that, that all those different, tips there kind of come together to give you a lot more um, comfortability. I think uh, writing down the steps is great, but also, as you said, um, with someone that is a regular patient, someone who already knows you and perhaps trusts you, and then being honest with um, the fact that this is something that's relatively new to you, um, it takes the pressure off. And um, yeah, a patient that understands you is always someone who's going to be more understanding if anything was to be a little bit pear-shaped perhaps. Yeah, definitely. I think you, you, you know, some things go wrong, and the worst time is it goes wrong on a patient that's not happy. Then you're really, you're really <laughs> yeah, down. It's you're not, really that's shit's not a really. fun day. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly right. So you know, if you've got a patient that you've seen, you've done some work before. You know, they really love you. You've got a good rapport with them. You know them well. You know, then you say, look, I think this will be suitable for you, and this is a new technique I would like to try, and I think the for these reasons it's going to be great for you. Generally, most of them will say, yep. I trust you david like let's let's do it exactly that's ex- that's the experience you get if you've built the relationship let's um wrap this up with a few um questions for graduates we really try and get some tips here for graduates and i guess the first um question is you do do a lot of teaching what mistakes or just some general points do you see younger dentists making that you think you can point out and perhaps help people change over treatment planning I think that's a that's a uh, 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 I think something that I find that can occur. We we all like you said go on Instagram and you you go on Facebook and see all these big beautiful cases and we might be taught a formula like we get taught a lot of there's a lot of marketing how to sell a treatment plan or how to tr- do a treatment plan and sometimes that uh, we forget about the patient and I think that one thing we really need to look into is that. Sometimes we're so focused on the dentistry, we forget to see the person that's in front of us, you know, and, and actually understanding our patient's needs because we don't all live in a perfect world. I don't have perfect teeth, you know. My wife doesn't have perfect teeth. My kids don't have perfect teeth. How can I expect that every single one of my patients should have perfect teeth, you know? And I think it's something that we need to understanding of what they really want or how what my treatment plan is going to really affect them. And I think if we can actually have or empathize for them and we can show them that, we find that uh, patients, you really win them over. But really important is not to, to over-treatment plan them. You know, not everyone needs ortho as before a restorative case. It's important that we tell them that is an option. But I don't think that we should be saying, looking at an x-ray, looking at a photo and say, look, you need ortho here, you need these crowns, you need these crowns replaced, you need these restorations fixed up, and these are all the things you need to do. And Mr. Smith, this is going to cost you this much. You know, I think just finding out what they're really coming in for and then just finding out maybe treatment plan this, it may not be ideal. You know, it might, she might need a crown, but you really, she can only want, she only really wants a filling. You know, why don't we just do the filling sow the seeds for the other work and say let's re- would, let's regroup this at another time and hopefully they get a really good positive experience and another thing that i find that really helps and i see a lot is is that doing too much in one appointment 
you know, I think a lot of young dentists or a lot of people with that because this patient, oh, wow, I've got this patient who wants to do it all, who wants to do all 10 fillings in one appointment because, look, they just don't have time and they want to do all 10 fillings in one appointment and hence I'm going to do all 10 fillings for them. Oh, wow, it's going to, it's going to be the big – It's going to. I just need to see that one patient and I've done the work for my day, right? But most of the time we forget to see is that that, that patient may not actually know what going through 10 fillings is really going to feel like. You know, I can tell you that after having 10 fillings done, they're really not going to be feeling great at the end of the appointment. And you know what? And that makes you that makes them maybe a bit more fearful of dentistry. They're a bit more reluctant to go to a dentistry. In my case, is if I had a patient that needed 10 fillings, I actually only do two. And I get them back. I said, let's do let's just start with two first. Because you've never felt, you've never had so many feelings before. I can assure you, you're not going to be feeling great afterwards. I want them to leave my chair with a good experience. If they leave their ch- your chair with a good experience, they're more likely to come back. And repeat business or repeat patients, I think, is the biggest practice builder than trying to win, trying to fight for new patients. That's such a good point. And if they go home happy and tell someone else, then you, it's, it's win-win as well. Exactly. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, this episode has just been packed with tons and tons of stuff. And I, I think I'm going to leave it there because uh, the last two points, they're really useful points. Thank you so much, Dr. Anthony Mack, for coming and spending your, your evening with us on the Dental Head Start podcast. No problems, David. I'm sure you say that to everyone, but but I'm so hopefully I've hopefully I've uh, hopefully I mean look like I said I'm an open book. I'm happy to share, and hopefully people can uh, can relate to it. Yeah, I'm sure they can, and I'm sure they will see a lot of your stuff. You know, DentalX and many other forums where you're posting content, you're helping us um, for free. Um, we appreciate everything you're doing. No problems. Thanks a lot, David. Now amongst all of the anxiety patients there's one particular group that are more anxious and probably more difficult to treat than any other and that is the patient with a severe gag reflex there are a whole lot of reasons why people have gag reflexes and we need to be kind of uh, sensitive about it because they can have a gag reflex because they've had a near drowning experience they can have a severe gag reflex because they've been sexually abused sometimes they're related to quite traumatic history so be gentle and sensitive with the patient nonetheless dealing with a gag can be quite tricky and it can be quite stressful for us so here's some tips for that the gag reflex is more sensitive the more anxious you become so it's like bad spiral there because patients who have gag reflex also tend to be anxious and the more anxious they become the worse it gets so a very simple way to reduce the gag reflex is to sedate use anxiolysis or to do a general anesthetic. So any form of pharmacology that reduces anxiety will also reduce the gag reflex. That's why, uh, for instance, when we get an endoscopy down our throat, we get propofol, which sedates us to the point where we don't gag. Uh, Or if we do gag, we don't remember it, which is the same thing from the patient's point of view. Suppress anxiety with pharmacology, the gag reflex reduces or they don't remember it, either way is fine. Secondly, In the patients who are not such bad gaggers, you can often resolve it by doing acupuncture right here. Now, if you're going to do acupuncture on a patient, don't get the big needles that you see the Chinese acupuncturists use. They're too dangerous hanging around outside of the patient's mouth and you'll be too anxious to do anything because you'd be worried you'll whack them with your elbow and knock it in. 
So, plus they're a bit weird to use. So you can get the really short acupuncture needles on some sticking plaster and we'll have a link in the description below that will show you where we get them from. Put one right here. I don't think it matters that much where you put it because I used to put them here and then I put them here and they work just as well. I think it's a placebo effect. It has been shown by the British Dental Journal that it does work in about 80% of cases, but it's probably a placebo. I don't really care. I just know that it helps. Salt on the tongue helps a lot. So we have salt. It doesn't have to be Himalayan pink salt, okay, or whatever. It can just be regular cheap salt. Sprinkle that on the tongue. Acupuncture here. It's important to tell them that the acupuncture thing will reduce their gag reflex because you want to get maximum placebo effect if it is that. Anesthetizing the tongue helps a lot. So if you're doing a procedure on the lower jaw, then the tongue will be numb. If you're doing a procedure on the upper jaw, sometimes I numb the lower jaw as well just to anesthetize the tongue so that it's not touchy when things touch it. Most people with a bad gag reflex, if you put a rubber dam on, it stops all the water going down the back of the throat and they feel better. But a small percentage of people, you put a rubber dam on them, they gag immediately and you can't use one. So that will be dependent on the patient. And if you can't do that procedure without a rubber dam, then you need a general anesthetic or sedation. The last thing is, you have to be a little bit heartless with gaggers. Uh, first of all, tell them that it's okay. It's okay to be a gagger. I'm a gagger. Half my staff in the clinic are gaggers. There's nothing wrong with you. You're not weak. You're not useless. It's not because you're not strong enough that you have a gag reflex. It just is. It's like you can't stick your finger in your eye without blinking. It's the same thing. So it's okay to be a gagger. But if you're going to take an impression on a gagger, be ruthless. Fill the tray up properly because there's nothing worse than when you take an impression and you didn't get it properly and you have to take it another time. So that's a key part with gaggers. If you're going to take an impression, fill the tray up properly and get it first go and just have a bucket ready so that if they vomit, they vomit. Okay, but that doesn't happen that often. In summary with the gagger, sedate them. Anxiolysis, general anaesthetic. Don't spend an entire appointment fighting with someone with a gag reflex. If you can't treat them easily, just stop get them back another day and work out whatever pharmacology you need to get the procedure done comfortably for them so that it's also comfortable for you. Now, if they say, I don't want to take any sort of medication, I, I just want to deal with it, but you can't do the treatment, just say no. Like you can't go to the orthopedic surgeon and say, I want my hip replacement done under local anesthetic. You don't get that choice. You're a surgeon, act like one, tell the patient how it's going to be done and what medication you need to get them comfortable to get you comfortable. Thank you so much for listening to the Dental Head Start podcast. I genuinely hope this is helping you become a better dentist. So if you like what you're hearing, make sure you subscribe on your podcast player and I want you to do me a favor. I want you to go to social media and share something that you've appreciated from us with one of your friends. That's how the word gets out. That's how more people gain and benefit from what we're doing. And if you're a dental student or a graduate and you want to get a head start, go to dentalheadstart.com start to find everything we're doing to help dental students become great dentists.